All right, we're back in the letters to the churches in Revelation, and you may recall that a few weeks ago, on Easter Sunday, we were given the vision of the risen Christ who was enrobed in glory. He was holding the keys to death and Hades, having conquered the grave, but also he was standing in the midst of his churches to rule and to heal them. And it is now in that context, right in the midst of his church, that he speaks to the seven churches in Asia Minor, to bring them toward health and wholeness as they await his return. And it is in this context, in our midst, that Jesus speaks to us today, ruling and caring and therefore calling us to embrace the life and health and peace that he offers in the gospel. So in that context, we read, and young worshipers, these are seven, we're about to read for the next seven weeks, seven little letters to churches in the ancient world. And in every letter, Jesus makes a promise to the church near the end of the letter. I want you to see if you can listen for that promise and write down what it is in your work for young worshipers. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, you gave your only Son to be for us both a sacrifice for sin and an example of godly living. Give us grace, thankfully, to receive his inestimable gifts and daily to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you be seated? So I recall a time not long ago when for the first time in my life, I had to really start taking my health seriously. Now, I'm not a big risk taker. I've never broken a bone Never had a major surgery or anything, needing physical therapy, stuff like that. I guess I had braces when I was a kid, so that that was the extent of my anxiety about my overall health. And for most of my 20s, like a lot of young men, I just never went to the doctor, right? Sick or well, just didn't have need for it. If something bothers you, you just, it'll feel better tomorrow and just shake it off. But a few years ago, began to have chest pains, these just kind of stabbing Pains persistent and annoying, so I did what any self-respecting 
man would do. I went and complained to my wife about it. And eventually she twisted my arm to get to the doctor, and of course he was able to easily diagnose and begin to treat the issue. The diagnosis went something like this. Hey, I see you've had some family trauma recently, yes? And I see that you are a pastor, which I would imagine is a fairly stress-inducing profession, yeah? So let me ask you some questions. When was the last time that you exercised? Oops. How are your eating habits? Okay. What about sleep? Are you going to bed at a normal time? And by the way, do you talk to someone about these things? As you can imagine, my answers to those questions were not medically satisfactory, and my doctor pretty easily said, look, you are anxious and you're stressed and you're having panic attacks. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to exercise regularly. I want you to watch what you eat and get some sleep. And I want you to take this medication. And I want you to talk to somebody about these things. Now, in that moment, what are my choices? I could say, great, I'll get to work on those things and start kind of checking those boxes and get ready to come back to the next checkup and report my overall improvements. But first and most importantly, I have to agree with the diagnosis. I have to say, look, I'm here, doc. I know there's a problem. I don't quite know what it is. Would you tell me? Because I could simply say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get what you're talking about. I actually think my chest pains and panic attacks and so forth, I think they're coming because I don't work hard enough. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to double down, work harder, and that'll fix the problem. No, that's madness, right? Of course it is. But actually... It's our default mode as humans, believe it or not. Cornelius Van Til, a reformed apologist, said it like this, A man may have internal cancer, yet it may be the one point he will not have one speak of in his presence. He will grant that he is not feeling well. He will accept any sort of medication so long as it does not pretend to be given an answer to a cancer diagnosis. Will a good doctor cater to him in this matter? Why am I doing a sermon series on the letters in Revelation through the lenses of church health? Is it because we are a radically unhealthy church? No, it's not. Is it because we have some rampant and blatant sin that's infecting our congregation and seeking to destroy us? No. But it is because we are a church like most other churches that can at times reflect the culture around us. And therefore, just like the city that we inhabit, we have difficulty being organizationally honest about our past, about our struggles, about our shortcomings, our family secrets, our insider baseball. I've had one person describe it to me like this. You know, coming into a new church from the outside... Can, can be like walking into a minefield. You sense that there are mines or maybe wounds there, but you have no idea where they are, you, and no one seems to talk about them. You're not sure where to go for guidance. Actually, I imagine that that's not too dissimilar for the experience for some of you who have moved to Dallas in the last number of years. It's like, whoa, what is this? This is a great city, but what's, what are some of the, what's the story here? Now, in our case, that may be overstating the point, but the idea is this. To assess the health of our church during this new season, where else can we go 
but to the diagnostic of the word of God. And here we have the risen Christ holding the keys to death and Hades and standing in the midst of his church, knowing them as their good shepherd, calling them toward health, calling them to be organizationally honest, commending them, many of them, to be sure for their success and their faithfulness, but also rebuking them for their sins and calling them back to life and health in him. Now, I think what Christ says to the church in Ephesus really serves as the fountainhead for all that comes after because here Jesus brings health and life to his church through the gift of repentance. He invites the Ephesian church, a good church with a long history of ministry and faithfulness, he invites even this church into repentance because in the Christian life, repentance is not optional. This is a church, by the way, that has been pastored by giants in the ancient world, by Timothy, by Paul himself at different times, by John, as tradition holds. And at this point, the Ephesian church is about 40 years old. And as you can see, Jesus commends the church for its faithfulness. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, you've been faithful, you've endured against false, prof- false apostles, false teaching, you've endured for my name's sake, you've not shrunk back in the face of persecution. You've been faithful to carry out the ministry. In summary, you have been faithful in doctrine and in public life. You are a good church. Hey, first pres Ephesus, two thumbs up for doctrine and your public reputation. But, verse 4, I have this against you. By the way, it was a Presbyterian church. You know that, right? Just kidding. Verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love, so repent. Now, we'll talk more about what first love means in just a moment and just what Jesus is getting at, but notice this first. The fact that this church has been faithful in doctrine and in public life does not preclude them from the call of Christ to repent, In other words, you don't have to be the prodigal son eating pig slop to recognize your need for repentance. Actually, Martin Luther is famous for the first of his 95 theses, which claimed that the entirety of the Christian life consists in repentance. It's the lifeblood of the Christian walk. It's the posture of our lives as believers, and it is not optional. And one reason that it's not optional for individuals And for organizations like churches is because it is a gift. Our confessional documents call it an evangelical grace. That is that it is a gift that Jesus gives to us by virtue of the gospel of his life, death, and resurrection. He has earned it for us. It's a gift of mercy, even when it doesn't seem like it. Perhaps you're familiar with the tale of the emperor's new clothes, wherein a proud emperor is swindled by his royal clothiers who make him to think that they've gifted him with some of the finest clothes in the land. Indeed, so fine are they that he can't even feel them. It can't even be felt. And so as the emperor leads procession through his kingdom, he does so not knowing he's actually naked. And the clothes makers have tricked him until 
a young child finally points out his nakedness. Now, who, who gave the greater gift? The clothes makers or the child? It was a gift that needed to be given, but it was a gift that the proud emperor was not ready for. Last fall, our elders were making our way through some matters in our own hearts that led us to believe and, and be convicted that we needed to repent before you all as a congregation for some ways that we'd failed to shepherd you. And I'm not going to rehash all that here, but I do want to point out this. It brought up the question of the appropriateness of public repentance. Should church leaders come before an entire congregation, even those not directly affected, and voice their public repentance? It's a good question. It's a, it's a complex one, but I'll tell you this. Whatever metric we use to evaluate that question, it cannot be whether it would make our public reputation take a hit, and it cannot be whether our doctrinal fidelity or public reputation makes up for our leadership's corporate sins. Repentance is not optional, primarily because it is Christ's gift to sinners that we might walk in ways before one another that are restorative and honoring to him. And this includes individuals and also bodies. And yet, we have to be careful here. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called On the Dangers of National Repentance, wherein he pointed out that there was a generation of young people in England after the Second World War who went around repenting for the complicity of their fathers in the sins of the war. But the problem is that their repentance was not sincere. It was kind of like what we would call today virtue signaling. It wasn't from the heart, and it didn't really grapple with the deep matters of sin's deceitfulness. But Jesus teaches us here that real repentance is not superficial. Look back at verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, what does Jesus mean when he says, you have lost your first love? You may have heard this verse used in various contexts like I have it's a kind of favorite verse of marriage conferences, right? Or like evangelism conferences. You've lost your love and your fervor for evangelism. But Jesus here is literally talking about himself. He's saying to the church, you've lost your love for the foundation of this whole thing, the essence of the, the fervor of the previous generations of this church. You have not loved me. So repent. Repent. And do the works you did at first, that is the inward work of repentance and love for Christ, which also yields outward fruit. He tells them, interestingly, to remember from where they have fallen. Now that's, that's interesting. He tells them to reflect, to look back at the story of their church, to wonder at their corporate history and see how they have fallen. He's telling them to do Real, hard, organizational reflection with regard to their demonstration of love for Christ. Why is remembering or looking back, why is that an important part of repentance? 
Wendell Berry has a little novel called Remembering, and he tells in it the story of an angry and aloof farmer named Andy who loses his right arm in a farming accident. And he just, in the novel, just shrivels up in his bitterness, and he treats his wife horribly, and he takes out his anger and bitterness primarily on her, despite her just persistent love and care and service to him. And in the book, Andy goes on a trip to a big city for a conference, and while on the trip, he has plenty of occasion to think and to reflect and to remember his life, and he comes to the realization that his bitterness is not warranted and that he has missed out on so much of the good gift that is his wife and family and that he needs to go home and repent. And this is the account of his arrival home. I just want to read a little bit of it to you. He takes his suitcase out of the cab and walks to the house across the back porch, through the screen door and into the kitchen, a pretty room, bright and quiet. He loves this quiet and he stands still in it, breathing it in. There's a note to him on the table. After looking at it for a minute or two, he goes over and reads it. You're back? Mart called. They have lots of beans. We've gone to pick and visit. Love, Flora. With her note in his hand, standing in her place, in her absence, he feels the strong quietness with which she has cared for him and waited for him all throughout his grief and anger. He feels her justice, her great dignity in her suffering of him. He feels around him a blessedness that he has lived in in his anger and did not know it. He is walking now from room to room, breathing in the smell of the life that the two of them have made and that she has kept. He walks from room to room, entering each as if for the first time, and he's saying over and over to himself, I am blessed. I am blessed. See, as Andy reflects on his life and on his sin, he remembers, just as Christ commands the Ephesians here, he remembers just how far he has fallen. Just how blessed he's been by the love of this woman and her care for him, and therefore how foolish his bitterness toward her was. The story itself is actually a beautiful illustration of repentance because the whole thing takes place in the context of a journey. Andy is the prodigal who is walking the streets of the big city early in the morning just thinking, reflecting on his life. He recognizes how much he's left behind and so he literally turns around, he changes his mind and he goes home. And all along the journey he wrestles, he remembers, he repents. He doesn't just superficially say hey, she'll take me back no matter what. He reflects on his story and how he got here and he repents and he goes home and he bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Have you ever reflected like this on the weight of sin, on the journey Christ has brought you on to come home? Or are you quick to assuage your earthly guilt and move on? One of the primary reasons that we are given the gift of repentance and the space within that gift really to honestly reflect is that repentance is also not transactional. Look at verses 6 and 7. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, who we'll talk about in a future week. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what is the promise held out here? Think back to the tree of life in Genesis 3, when the Lord God sent Adam and Eve away from the garden, away from his presence, away from access to the tree of life, lest they should live as sinners in the presence of a holy God, and lest they should live forever in their fallen state. Well, what Jesus promises here is renewed access to the tree of life in the very paradise of God. That is, he's holding out to the Ephesians eternal life in God's presence, the chief blessing of Scripture, the reversal of the curse, the restoration of mankind, eternal nourishment and fellowship with him. So why is it held out to the one who conquers Is this like a transactional kind of repentance where where the promise is given only to those who work hard enough and reach some higher spiritual plane? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand how the word conquer is used in Revelation. You know, the next scene in the book, after these letters to the churches, really transports the reader into the heavenly throne room of God where all kinds of creatures are engaging in heavenly worship of the lamb who was slain but who is risen and seated on the throne and who by his blood that is by his death has defeated the enemy and ransomed his people and then when you roll the tape forward to some of the great conflicts in revelation there's always this picture of Jesus conquering his enemies leading his people and leading the host of heaven in these cosmic battles But then listen to what John sees in Revelation chapter 12 when one of these great battles is being described. And it's a symbolic way of describing the defeat of Satan because of the death of Jesus. He writes this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, the one who conquers in Revelation is the one who has as his only weapon the blood of the Lamb. Another way to say it is this, the one who conquers is the one who is united to the risen and conquering King who has made us by his victory over death more than conquerors. So this gift of repentance and the promise of life that accompanies it It's not transactional. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't reach into heaven and grab it. Instead, it has come down to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death in your place and who calls you to be a conqueror in him. The one who conquers is the one who has faith in Jesus, who rests upon him alone for salvation, just as these waters called young Shiloh to, call all of us to. 
The one who conquers is the one who has faith and therefore who receives this gift of repentance bearing fruit as he goes back again and again to the same fount throughout the Christian journey for it is indeed that, a gift. A gift for individual Christians, a gift for churches when we realize our need for health and confess and repent of our sins. Church, here's my exhortation. We, we here in the PCA, we're good at doctrine. Praise God for that, right? And honestly, we have a decent reputation of faithfulness over now 50 years of ministry as a denomination in just a a few months. Um, Some of us will go to the PCA's 50th General Assembly. But make no mistake, how do you know if a church, or if a denomination for that matter, is healthy? It's not merely by its confession, not merely by its programs, not merely by the number of missionaries it supports, not by its sermons or by its percentage of members in small groups or its notoriety in the city or by any of those other things that may certainly come with church health. You see, Jesus offers us here a more foundational answer. One mark of a church's health is its repentance. Are these people quick to repent when they wrong one another? Are they organizationally honest? Is the leadership willing to stand and say, we've sinned? And do we bear with one another in repentance, offering restoration through forgiveness, knowing that none of us has earned that gift, and so we can freely give it to others? It is not optional. So may we recover this good gift of repentance unto the health and life of this body. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord our God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, dwell among us, live a righteous life, die a substitutionary death, submit to burial in the grave, and rise again on the third day. He's ascended now, seated at your right hand, having sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper, to convict us of our sin, to draw us to repentance, to show us this beautiful gift of life that you call us into. And Lord, in this new season of our church, would you mark us as a people who repent well together before you, before one another, Would you give us this grace all the more in Jesus' name? Amen.